The readings taken from Matthew chapter 25, beginning at verse 14. And the context is Jesus talking about the kingdom of heaven. For it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Oh, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also, he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, uh, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, Oh, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, there's one character in that story I really don't want to be. How about you? I mean, this is one of those parables which leaves us feeling uncomfortable. It was going so well until it got to the end. It kind of gets under your skin and you're supposed to think, don't want to end up like that last servant. 
would love to hear the words spoken over the first two. The story grabs your attention and it's designed for us to chew on it and to digest it over time. There's more going on than first meets the eye. And like every part of the Bible, it needs to be understood in the context of the whole. Now, let's have a quick reminder about the functions of parables because we're concluding our mini-series in the parables today. Uh, parables are short fictional stories that Jesus told, and they are often not straightforward, sometimes difficult to understand, many times surprising, often provocative. And he crafted them for specific purposes and told them in conversation with specific people at particular moments of time in his ministry. And they provide a commentary around what was happening through the arrival of Jesus. He was shaking everything up, launching the kingdom of heaven on earth, fulfilling the law and the prophets. You see, the parables are not moral motivational tales, although they've often been cast in that light. We tend to situate them in our culture and make them all about me and my morality. But these stories that Jesus told are not situated in 21st century capitalist, individualist Western society. They do have much to say to us. They certainly do have huge implications for how we should live. But to approach the parables rightly, we must first hear them as the original listeners would have done. We must try to do that. Context is key. So what is the context here with this parable? Well, Jesus is just days away from betrayal, trial and crucifixion. And he knows it. He's been forewarning his disciples about this repeatedly. His hour is coming and he's focused on the task ahead. And here he is talking privately to his disciples. And he tells them a series of stories in Matthew 25 about judgment and crisis and readiness for the kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Now, these private conversations were happening off hot on the heels of another public running with the Jewish leaders, the leaders that wanted Jesus dead. A little while earlier in Matthew 22, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had been trying to trap Jesus in his words. And then Jesus exposes their hypocrisy in a pretty fiery speech. He tells them that they've totally missed God and they've misrepresented God to others. And yet the Lord's heart still aches for them. In chapter 23, we read that Jesus looks over Jerusalem and he weeps as he sees what lies ahead for the city that's rejected its God. Then in Matthew 24, we read that Jesus and his disciples walk past the temple in Jerusalem. The temple, the centerpiece of the city, the place of meeting with God and the disciples are amazed at the beauty of the building and the size of the stones. But Jesus says something shocking to them. He says, this temple will be utterly destroyed, not one stone left on another. It's a sober prediction and an unthinkable disaster to faithful Jews. But within a generation of Jesus' words in AD 70, the words came to pass. Romans invaded Jerusalem and reduced the temple to rubble. 
But Jesus tells his disciples all of this ahead of time so that they would know that he is God's promised one. You see, Jesus himself would now be the global meeting place with God after his resurrection, not the temple. But his words still shock and, def- and confuse the disciples at that time. And so they ask him in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Tom Wright explains that what they're asking is, well, when will the world know that you are God's Messiah? And in chapter 24 and 25 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is giving his response. And it's a now and not yet response. The kingdom is both near and far off. Soon the temple will be destroyed. Sooner still, Jesus will rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, the son of man who was prophesied about by the prophet Daniel. His kingdom is at hand, it's already arrived. And yet also Jesus speaks to them of troubled times ahead, of turbulence and uproar as the kingdom of heaven confronts the kingdom of darkness. The full arrival of his kingdom is a future event, the times and dates of which remain unknown, except to the Father. In fact, Jesus says that to to his followers, it will sometimes seem like his coming is very delayed, even absent. So the message is, therefore, stay ready, stay faithful, be awake to what God is doing, Embrace the way of the kingdom of God. That's the context to this parable. So let's revisit the story then. There is a master who makes a generous investment in his own servants. He gives them talents. Now, a talent was a measurement of weight in the ancient world, most likely in this case of silver. So one talent of silver equated to 15 years worth of wages. So this master is generous and comfortable with risk. He wants to catch up his servants with what is his so that it can be put to good use. And it seems that he knows them well. You see, he gives to each of them a certain amount according to their ability, not burdening anyone with too much nor limiting anyone with too little. And the master goes away, expecting his servants to put these talents to work. Now, in doing so, the servants will be publicly representing their master. People will see that they're associated with him, partnering in his business, doing his bidding, carrying his name. After a long time, the master returns and two of the servants have been faithful with what they were given. They have seen the master invest into them and have done likewise, using the talents to invest further abroad so that what the master gave has grown, increasing his influence. Over them, the master speaks wonderful words. Well done, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful. I'm gonna give you even more. Enter into my joy. This master has generosity and he has joy and he delights to share both with his servants. The servants share in who he is and in what he has and are rewarded for their faithfulness with even more responsibility. 
Uh, but this, this other servant, he's done something quite differently. He's not publicly invested what his master gave, not even simply putting it with the bankers to just work by itself. Instead, he buried it and hid it. Why? Well, we're told that he has a very different view of his master. I knew you were a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. This judgment, this is a surprise because it's out of keeping with everything we've seen so far. I mean, this servant has himself been a recipient of his master's scattering and sowing. He's received a talent from him, not too much, not too little. Where has he got this impression? And even if his view of his master was right, it makes no sense just to bury it if he was expecting what he was. No, he's misread his master altogether. He's not known him. Treating him as if the talent were a burden, not a blessing, as if he's cruel and not kind. It's like he's got these non-prescription glasses on and he's looking at the same master as the other two, but what he's seeing is all blurred and distorted and frightening and untrue. And so rather than imitating what his master is truly like and passing on the investment, he buries it, just keen to give it back. So he's judged according to his own choices. What was given to him is taken away. And he is left in the distorted reality that he embraced. No joy to share in, but utter loss, trapped in anger, gnashing of teeth and, and sorrow, weeping. Anger and sorrow of his own making. What is the immediate application of this parable then? given the context we looked at earlier. Remember, the kingdom is both near and far, both at hand and not yet. Firstly, it is at hand. Commentators explain that a story of servants belonging to a master who goes away would certainly have been heard in first century Jerusalem as a reference to God's relationship to Israel. This is standard biblical imagery. And so the original immediate application was to those experiencing Jesus's coming then and there, the Pharisees and the disciples. The Jewish leaders are in view with the unfaithful servant. They've been given the Torah and the temple, the law and the prophets, generous gifts from God, huge blessing. And right from the beginning, when God called Abraham and set apart a people for himself, God made it clear, you are blessed in order to be a blessing, to bless all the people of the world. Pass it on, invest it, let the gift grow and the giver be known. But the religious leaders had buried these gifts where ordinary people could not get to them. The knowledge of God was kept inside for a few, for the elite, for the special, away from the poor and the needy and the outcast and the sinners, the very people who Jesus had been investing in throughout his time in Judea. The temple officials had misrepresented God 
And they'd missed him themselves, trapped in a distorted view of God, seeing him as hard and distant and ungenerous. And so they had become themselves hard and distant and ungenerous outside of the kingdom of his generosity and joy. A.W. Tozer says, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. How you live flows from that starting point. I wonder what Judas would have made of this parable as he sat and listened to Jesus telling it. Within hours, he would be selling Jesus out for silver coins, trading the kingdom for money because of a distorted view of Jesus. What would faithful servanthood look like for those first disciples? Well, it would look like passing on the generosity and the joy of the master. It would look like care for the poor and the needy and the hurting, the imprisoned and the unimpressive. The very next parable Jesus tells of the sheep and the goats makes that clear. It would also look like extravagant celebration of who Jesus is, the anointing in Bethany as this woman pours expensive perfume over Jesus. It illustrates it well. And at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, his followers would, would sow the seeds of the kingdom wherever they went, planting churches, caring for the poor and vulnerable, healing the sick, giving their money away, sharing their possessions, sharing in the joy of the master, faithful servants who knew their God. That's the immediate application. But the kingdom was near and far, at hand and still to come. The parable speaks also to the final judgment, to the time when Jesus will return and set the worlds to rights, when all will be gathered around his throne, you and me. So how does this story address us? How do we see God? How we handle our gifts and our resources matters. It will be directly related to how you view the giver. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's so easy to create an image of God from our own imaginings. John Calvin says the human mind is a factory of idols. That's why it's so important for us to be regularly gathering together and to hear God's word and to be in God's word ourselves and to be encouraging one another because we can so easily go off track. You see, God is not like us. He is exactly like Jesus. Generous and kind and gracious and joyful, unflinching in truth, unrivaled in mercy, concerned that all should know him as he really is. We all of us have different gifts, different resources, different opportunities. Some seem huge, some seem small. Some of us are creative some analytical, some good with numbers, some good with words, some good with children, some good with the confused, the elderly. Some have big homes, some very small homes. Some are parents, some are single, some have jobs, some do not. He has made an investment though in all of us. You bear his image and he has given himself in the person of Christ. You have gifts that may be used to pass on his goodness. 
his generosity and his grace. And it's not a case of the most talents wins. The issue is not being successful. Mother Teresa was once asked how she handled looking after all the dying people on the streets of Calcutta when she knew it was impossible to meet the needs of them all. And she replied to the reporter who'd asked that question and said, I'm not called to be successful. I'm called to be faithful. What is it that you've been given? Use it, exercise it. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as for the Lord who is generous to you, who loves you. Teach to the glory of God. Play your instrument to the glory of God. Look after your patients to the glory of God. Manage your home to the glory of God. Keep going with the recovery to the glory of God. Robert Farrar Capron explains, when God gives a gift, it is to keep it moving. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Don't bury it to yourself. You know, when we stop exercising a gift, it soon diminishes like muscles that atrophy if you stop using them. But when you faithfully exercise a gift, it influences, its influence grows and you like your muscles. And so do opportunities with it. For to everyone who has will more be given. And he will be given in abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this is not about comparing yourself to others. Each of us have our own abilities and limitations. We all have our unique struggles. We don't all have five talents. But use what you've been given such that those around may taste the goodness of the master, his generosity. The parables of the workers that Jesus tells earlier in Matthew make it clear this isn't about success. The ones who joined at the beginning of the day got paid the same as those who'd only done half an hour's work. It's about his generosity, passing it on. This includes how we handle our money. On the one hand, this parable is about money entrusted. Fleming Rutledge suggests that the parable encourages us to use our money like it's going out of fashion, because it is. Don't bury your finances in self-interest. Invest it into the things of God. What does that mean? It means being generous to those around us who are in need, the poor, the desperate. At a time like this, that's so relevant. There will be a final judgment. All will be gathered around the throne of the king. That's no small matter. But the most important thing will not be the works you've done. Don't look to those. But there will be the king who you've known. He is not out to condemn you. John 3.17 says he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. He's out to bring you into his joy, to share with you what is his. If we're really going to understand this parable, we must hear it in the light of what's about to happen to Jesus. In just a few days after telling these, this story, Jesus himself was thrown into outer darkness. 
Around him gathered some who were weeping in sorrow, others who were gnashing their teeth in anger. He was crucified outside of the city walls. And Matthew tells us for three hours, darkness came over the land and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He joined the condemned in outer darkness and utter loss that he may raise the condemned to the joy of new life in him of sharing in the abundance of his generosity and joy. He is the judge, judged in our place, as Karl Barth puts it. A God who in no way will condone sin, but a God who will do everything to rescue us from it. See him again today, full of grace and truth, generous and poured out for you, See him not with distorted lenses. See him as he really is. See, receive, and pass on his goodness.